Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth from Maya has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Philip Broughton, a health physicist, and I should mention the... Uh, creator and proprietor of Black Blood of the Earth, the wonderful caffeinated uh, delight that we have mentioned previously on this show. How's it going, Philip? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. So tell me off the bat, what is a health physicist? A health physicist is the term that was chosen during the Manhattan Project to describe all the people who were doing radiation safety. So while all the researchers were down there trying to figure out how a nuclear weapon could be built, there was another group of people who were watching the researchers and watching the material and making sure that we didn't kill ourselves and made sure we had more researchers to go in the future. And that eventually evolved into the profession that I do, which is looking after x-rays, looking after radioactive materials. So we've moved beyond weapons and reactors. So you say, but <laughs> you also you also have a pretty high clearance. Had. Like, uh, had. Okay. <laughs> I, I actually let that go when I walked out the, the front gate of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. But like everyone who's held a clearance, you know, those obligations never go away. So is there anything you're doing right now that I'm not – that I shouldn't ask you about? Are you totally like publicly accessible at this point? Yes, I am publicly accessible, and <laughs> I will just do a very good job at not answering any questions relating to things that were Q-cleared. Don't worry. It's Beautiful. actually pretty hard to hit them. So All right. <laughs> All right. Well, so let's say you – tell me about Antarctica. What, what is your, your connection to the, the, the pole? So in the 2002-2003 season, I spent a year and a day – at Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, which if you go grab a globe, look at the part where it spins, that's where I was. I was at the bottom of the globe. Uh, I had been working a job in Silicon Valley, and after one particularly bad day at work, I went down to the vending machine, got myself a Coke, sat down at my desk. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that swearing is probably okay on a podcast and we, we, we choose PG-13. Okay. And I, I can bleep you. Say what you want. Okay. And I sat down, took, made a deep sigh. What's the farthest I can get from these assholes? <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> and typed Antarctica jobs into <laughs> Yahoo, pressed enter, and was rather shocked to see Raytheon Polar Services come up at the top. And I sent in my resume and two years later, someone found my resume in the bottom of a, a drawer in a filing cabinet and on the strength of the second page, just because I had remembered to put my name on both pages, and one word on that page said cryogenics. That was enough to send me to Antarctica. Okay, so what Okay, what, what did you do in Antarctica my, exactly? Okay, not exactly. Whatever you're allowed to tell me. Uh, nothing cleared, cleared there. Uh, my, my official position was as science cryogenics technician. So it was literally my job to keep things cold in Antarctica. Uh, I was responsible for all the liquid helium and liquid nitrogen on the station for the experiments that were running and also looking after a couple of the radio telescopes that were down there. Unofficially, I was the bartender. So I never got paid for it, but it was a matter of one night during the summer. I walked into the bar and the only seat available was behind it. So I sat down and someone said, can you get me a beer? And I asked, do I look like a bartender? You're behind a bar. So I reached into the beer case, handed him a beer and said, do you know how to mix anything? Actually, I do. And there I stayed for the next 11 months. Wow. <laughs> So, okay, so we'll get back to mixology in one second because I want to talk about <laughs> Antarctic uh, bartending. But how uh, – oh, is is Antarctica as as uh, desolate and deadly as I think it is? 
the Antarctic does not care whether you like it, love it or not. If you don't respect it, it'll kill you. Um, just it's simple as that. The coasts are teeming with life. Right at the water's edge, there's so much for everything to eat. Everything may move a little slow because it's cold, but you have penguins, you have seals, you have whales, the invertebrate life on the bottom. It's it, it's roaring during the, the summer in Antarctica, just like Alaska. Once the snow goes away, it is the place to be for every bit of wildlife in North America. Same thing for Antarctica. South Pole Station, on the other hand, is a desolate, high, dry desert. Uh, despite all of that ice and snow around you, the actual precip average precipitation per year is only two thousandths of an inch. Most It's all blown snow. I actually have the shirt that I bought my first day because all of my clothes were left on a LC-130 back in New Zealand and was still two weeks away from me because I had the pair I was wearing. Bought a new shirt that said, an inch of powder, two miles of base. Because it's the ice sheet is that thick <laughs> at South Pole Station. So I have a question. Mm -hmm. Why did it take two years? There can't be a line of people trying to get jobs there. Actually, there is. Is there really? Uh, this this has been one of the traditional draws for Antarctica. Uh, there's a saying for the employees, for the contractors, you can get anyone to go once for the adventure, twice for the money, three times because you can't function in the real world anymore. Uh, anyone okay that 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 may be a stretch uh there's you can get a lot of people who are willing to go just on the principle of someone's going to pay for my ticket to be in antarctica sold let's go the question is do you have skills antarctica needs um just the sad fact of the matter is if you are a high-powered attorney in new york city there's not much call for that in antarctica right um there was there's a tale. I, I have no proof of it. It's just apocryphal tale. It goes through the staff down there that there was a senior appellate court judge who retired from the bench to be a dishwasher at McMurdo Station because that was the only way he was going to get to Antarctica. There have been times in my life where I've considered oh going doing something well below my station, quote unquote. Just to get somewhere that I really wanted to be. And I, I had always wanted to go to Antarctica. I had been offered an opportunity when I was in college. The lab next to mine, the, the researcher running it, went down every summer. And he'd seen what I was doing with my advisor at UC Santa Cruz. And he's just sort of shook his head and he said, you know, I, I don't know why I'd need a physicist. But I can't think of a reason I don't need one. You will, <laughs> would you like to go to Antarctica? And I, I would love to. I've always wanted to go since uh, since third grade. Oh wait, mm, I have this full time job. I'm I'm finishing my degree. I have a girlfriend who would kill me. I, I I'm doing my research lab here. I can't go. Several so, several years later, working in Silicon Valley, I had none of those things anymore. Did, <laughs> didn't have a girlfriend. Research was done. Uh, had a degree. Job I hated. I was more than happy to go to Antarctica. And that was actually one of the things I, I then started picking up when I was down there is it, it's, it's the ultimate geographic escape. Um, there's actually a term in the AA, Alcoholics Anonymous community, called pulling a geographic, which is the problems, all the problems in my life, they just have to deal with I'm right here. If only I was somewhere else, everything would be better. Yeah. Except that's never the case. Never. Because the problems generally are something wrong with you and you've just run somewhere else and you brought them with you and they reappear all over again. When you do it to Antarctica, you have taken your problems to the ends of the earth. You have gone as far as you can go. There is nowhere else to go. And then the station closes for nine months. So sit down. Get get cozy. Get to, get to know yourself because – uh, you can't run any farther. And as being the bartender, I started hearing everyone's stories for why are you here? My, All right, yeah. so, <laughs> so let's do that. So as a bartender, 
you 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 kind of fell into it, but you you developed uh based on what I've read a a uh, a very strong rapport and uh, a repertoire <laughs> of drinks. If you can't make a Manhattan, you have no job behind a bar. <laughs> that 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 is my favorite drink. It's the drink to which I owe my existence and my mother owes hers. Um so that, your favorite drink to drink or your favorite drink to make or both. both? Um it is also known as the American martini. This is actually a slur from the Europeans towards us with the presumption that Americans are unwilling to drink anything that doesn't taste like treacle. And this is a this is not a new American suck corn syrup with a straw uh view. This is almost as old as Prohibition, the view of the Manhattan being Americans can't handle a martini. I just like them because they're tasty, which may show. See, I've never found them tasty myself. I may need to try one of yours sometime. I generally find the thing that bartenders mess up is they don't actually use – either they don't use enough or they actually forget entirely to put Angostura bitters in. And you can use all kinds of different bitters in your Manhattan, but my favorite's Angostura. Which okay. is something I made a point in my luggage heading to Antarctica. I put two bottles in it to make sure that I would be able to make myself Manhattans when I was in Antarctica. <laughs> so you you did you you did have some kind of predestiny to be a bartender. Perhaps I. I you you kind of <laughs> planned ahead for this. I at least was looking out for my own consumption. Uh, <laughs> Cryogeny and bartending. Well, you planned ahead. You well, I actually combined it at at one point down there, making <laughs> making cryogenic cocktails. If when you have basically unlimited amounts of liquid nitrogen at your disposal, you can start doing things like making alcohol ices. And my favorite drink that I have about a thirty percent success rate making happen is making the. Vodka and vermouth martini in ice cube form, light them on fire and so the alcohol ice cubes are now burning and as you're doing that, you're consuming alcohol, which is heating the cubes. It's also dropping the alcohol content and the drink self-extinguishes its – when it gets below 100 proof because it can no longer sustain flame and it is melted and it's ice cold from fire. This is a drink you can probably only have in very special circumstances then. In, you just need a lot of liquid nitrogen to play with. Which you don't find in your average bar. You can at a welding supply store. But that's not a bar. No, you just you just need some toys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just just, just a I'm transport just, doer. I'm just saying you're not going to go down to your corner bar and order anything liquid nitrogen based. No, no, you're not. Unless someone's listening to our podcast and decides that they need a new business plan, in which case I fully endorse them. What would you call that bar? Oh, it's it's just a cryo bar. The South Pole. The South Pole. Cryo bar. Cryo bar. South Pole. A new cryo bar. Um, Actually, the, the, the proper name of the bar at South Pole Station, which sadly has been dismantled, was Club 90 South. Is that a latitudinal, longitudinal reference? Yep. That that is ninety degrees latitude. It is the bottom of the earth. Nice. There were other bars with different names at, at the other stations, but ours was Club Ninety South. <laughs> All right. Uh, so fast forward. Um, you, you, I'm, I'm quite sure you still mix uh, drinks, but you also create the Black Blood of the Earth. I do. What was the uh, What was the origin story for that? So once upon a time, a friend of a friend went to Japan and they went for a trip up into the hills, went to go visit the onsen. They were walking through town and they saw in a window display this beautiful lab glass construction with coffee suspended above, this interesting coil, glass coil coming down and dripping into a receiver below. And it was labeled as Viennese cold extraction coffee. And I looked at the setup that he had taken a picture of and I sort of squinted and said, I can build that. I can build several of that because before Funranium Labs existed, which is the the website where all of this is, uh, my home was known as the Philip Broughton Home for Wayward and Virgin Laboratory Glassware because 
as long as you're getting a collection of things, why not pick strange things? Because lab glass is beautiful. So for that first date when I brought my lovely assistant home to cook dinner for her, she walked into my kitchen and then took one step right back and said, I can't eat here because <laughs> she's a chemist and just looked at the lab glass lying around the and lying around the kitchen and she her safety training actually took and it left her very <laughs> very nervous and unwilling to consume things for a good long while till I could assure her none of this has ever seen anything but food <laughs> interesting but interesting so i started tinkering with okay what is the coffee that they're making here after i s assembled a, a rig similar to what they'd built and the first step I guessed at was it's something like the toddy coffee technique and just kind of looking at it, there are things that don't make physics sense about the toddy technique. And I, yeah, I, can, I think I can do this better. And after making an awful lot of messes uh, in the kitchen and I'm getting a vigorous head nod from my lovely assistant across from me, a lot of messes with trial and error, <clears throat> I – hit on a good way to do it. The impetus to do it, because I'd just sort of been farting around at that point for, well, what can I do, was when I got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. I had at that point been living in Livermore and was commuting into work at UC Berkeley. And that's an hour, perhaps hour and a half commute each way. And it was starting early. So caffeine was vitally important for not only me working, but for the life and limb of the people at UC Berkeley because working in the safety department, I am specifically responsible for all the radiation-producing machines and instrumentation. So me not awake is a serious safety concern. As part of trying to be a more healthy person and moving off drinking two liters of Coke a day, which had been my preferred way to get caffeine before then, I should start drinking coffee. Except what I was doing to make coffee drinkable to me was adding so much cream and sugar, I wasn't doing myself any favors by stopping drinking soda. Yeah. <laughs> so once I got diagnosed, it was a, okay. That thing I've been messing with in the kitchen, I really need to figure this out for good now. How to make coffee that I can drink without adding coffee and sugar to it. It's just as a happy side benefit, it ends up exceptionally caffeinated. <laughs> yeah, and delicious. The, the, I will give you that. The whole goal was to make something tasty that someone with a diabetic with a um, dire sweet tooth could drink without adding sugar. But you do you, – you have experimented with uh, blending black blood of the earth into your mixology. Well, yeah. Uh, for a lot of cocktails out there, we'll ask you to start using uh, creme, de cacao, creme de cafe, creme de cacao, or Kahlua. And all three of those are effectively syrup with a little bit of alcohol to them. And that meant for my cocktail – now, admittedly, if you ask most of your doctors out there, they'll say you shouldn't be having cocktails in the first place. <laughs> And uh, yes. my retort to my doctor when he told me that is uh, technically alcohol shuts off the glucose drip from your liver. So alcohol was actually a treatment technique for diabetes. And he sort of looked at me with a squint and said, you're not just going to do what I told you, are you? No, you're going to have to explain yourself to me. And he said, if you're going to drink, skip your medication that day because the drink is effectively medication. So it's alcoholism is a treatment program for diabetes right up until the point you hit cirrhosis of the liver. So I, I don't uh, medically recommend it. You would be a pain in the ass as a, as a patient. Especially when uh, nuclear medicine is involved. <laughs> Especially for that. So you can make a pretty good white Russian or a black Russian with uh, with black blood of the earth. It, though, huh? It's delicious. Um, one of the complaints that people have about things like mudslides is they are so sweet they just stick on your tongue. Yes. They don't stick with when you do it with black blood of the earth. They're rich and delicious, but um, they're not they're not Hershey syrup. I may have to try that. I mentioned to you pre-show that I was having a nice glass of um, St. George's uh, absinthe. Mm. And you asked me if I had ever tried it with Black Blood of the Earth, and I have not. Tell me how that works. 
So my my main testing group for Black Blood of the Earth for when I have a new one and I want to know a new roaster, a new bean, a new geographic varietal that I want to know how it tastes, how did the black blood turn out? The people I take it to to test are the tasting room at the St. George Spirits Distillery, which are some of the most refined palates I know kicking around. They, of course, return the favor by experimenting on me with alcohol. So uh, <laughs> uh, unlabeled flasks show up from the lab and they say, taste this, and I have to stomp on professional training and actually do it with the assumption that they're actually handing me something I can drink. So what they end up doing more often than not is for their own use because they're researching cocktails of their own. They'll combine their spirits with other things to see – come up with the recipes to recommend for others. The tasting room manager there, her name is Andy. There is a drink known as Andy's Breakfast. That is three parts black blood of the earth, two parts their absinthe, a dash of Chipotle vodka in a pint glass with ice cubes, fill it the rest of the way with chocolate soy milk. Eggs on the side? If you feel like it. Um, <laughs> it's... If you've ever had a Mexican hot chocolate, it tastes like a Mexican hot chocolate. It took a, a quick time out over in New Orleans. It, it's wonderful. Um, Interesting. I, I, could, I could drink them all day except I would fall over pretty quickly after probably sure. the third or so. Not to mention that's um, way more black blood than you should be having. <laughs> <laughs> Your bottles do come with a, a milliliter recommendation. Um, yeah. Have you – is the is the absinthe in these – is it louched or do you mix it straight? Well, once you drop the alcohol content below 100 proof, all the oils that have been suspended in the absinthe come out of solution. So it's a precipitate reaction. So that's why you're getting that cloudy. You have uh, basically little oil droplets inside of your drink now because they can no longer be dissolved in the alcohol because as your ice has melted, that happens. You also get this happens with ouzo and sambuca and arak and raki, which are all the same family of anise spirits that go across the top of the Mediterranean. Everyone thinks it's their own unique spirit. It's all pretty much the same thing. That <laughs> well, you just said a whole bunch of words that I don't know. But, um, well, this this comes from being very interested in alcohol and the cultural importance of it, learning things like heritage spirits. Most countries have one booze that they claim jump up and down is ours. It is the one that we have perfected. It's the one that is us. It's also the one we're not going to tax. I actually learned about this because of Antarctica because there was a day that I was lining up a shot of Jaeger for everyone. And I, as everyone knows, Jaeger, to be palatable, you have to keep it in the freezer. My freezer was a hole in the wall behind me where the Jaeger sat effectively outside. <laughs> of course it was. And I pulled it in and one of our – one of the people that was a researcher just looked at me and he shook his head. His name was Stefan. He was originally from eastern Germany and he just shook his head. I, I do not understand Americans and Jaegermeister. I said, what do you mean? In Germany, Jägermeister is the drink of hermits and old men in the woods it, it, and pensioners. And the reason why is because Germany doesn't tax Jägermeister. So it's the booze you can most easily afford. Huh. Every country has one of these. And it's fun finding out what they are and then drinking them and then asking, why did you choose this as yours? F for instance, Latvia. Latvia's national drink that they don't tax and promote the taste the, the, the sale of is called Rigas Balsams. It comes in a ceramic bottle with a cork stopper at the top. My old boss in Silicon Valley was a first-generation Latvian-American and got this smuggled to her on a regular basis. And she said, this is wonderful. You have to try this. And I drank it and it tasted like the KGB coffee that was put on in 1950s and had – been burning on the burner since then, yet you could still drink it. Um, yeah, not for me. <laughs> KGB coffee. Mm, well, that is a, that's just a random reference. Uh, it, it, it was what came up in my head trying to describe it to her. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. All right. Well, I'm going <laughs> to move, I'm move gonna on from a, booze. <laughs> I'm going to take a sponsor break. And yes, then we will move on from booze. Um, 
Our first sponsor today is MailChimp.com, and MailChimp.com means easy email newsletters. MailChimp helps you design newsletters, share them on social networks, integrate with your own services that you already use, and track your results. It's like your own personal publishing platform. They can help you customize your sign-up form to match your brand, so you can share it on your website and integrate it into your Facebook page. You can even collect signups from <laughs> you can even collect signups from an iPad or a laptop. Importing an existing list into MailChimp is a snap, no matter its format. You can also personalize everything your subscribers see, including sign-up forms and confirmation emails. There's never been a better time to try MailChimp. With their entrepreneur plan, if you have under 2,000 subscribers, you can send 12,000 emails per month forever. Just visit MailChimp.com slash 5 by 5 to learn more. Sometimes um, when I wake up, I wake up with both fists in the air like I'm, uh, like I'm really excited. And I don't know why. Is it a lot of coffee, perhaps? In anticipation of coffee? <laughs> it's quite possible. I just, I don't know. I like fist pump and it wakes me up. And I'm like, all right, let's go. Uh, I, I have to say that the only, only time I ever hit that is if you let me sleep past 10 a.m. Because if, oh, if there's an alarm that goes off, uh, I'm never happy to greet the day. That's Oh, I, I haven't used an alarm in years. I'm... But I can't sleep past 10 a.m. Again, you either. told me I'm not, I need to keep the swearing at a PG-13 level, so I, I, I'll just keep the blue streak. I want to aim your way in my head. Uh, <laughs> that, that may be the thing I miss the most about Antarctica is I had no alarm and just ended up free cycling the whole time, which was great because the satellites I had to keep track of to upload data moved by four minutes every day. So it was okay that my sleep was drifting every day. Sure. And I actually discovered weird things like, no, my, my natural day is roughly 32 hours long. And if you let me go to sleep at the right hours, I'm perfectly fine with five to six hours of sleep. If you, if you make me go to sleep at the wrong hours or try to wake me up too early, I, it doesn't matter how much you gave me. So if you if I wake up at 7 a.m., I'm never going to be happy. Guess what time I wake up every day? Uh, 7 a.m. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> yeah, I get up. I get up anywhere between, say, two and six. Hmm. And if I wake up, if I wake up and I look at the clock, that means it's time to get up. My brain will not let me go back to sleep after that point. It could be a it could be a constant state of caffeination. I don't know, <laughs> but I do not like I do not like going back to sleep. Once I wake up, that's it. Generally, I don't get the option to go back to sleep thanks to cats, because that that means now you get a cold nose in the armpit or a foot in the eye. So that's interesting. Good, good, like good morning. I, yes, have a cat. I have three cats. I have three cats, and none of them like to get up in the morning. One of them might get neurotic if, I, if if no one's like fed him by like eight a.m., but not generally. It's 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 often the pit bull that gets gets as excited as I do about getting up. At least when my wife's out of town, but most mornings there's nothing. All the animals, if my wife's in town and she's asleep, all the animals will sleep till ten. I'll be the only thing moving in the house, and I love that. What was uh what was that the sleep pattern that like reportedly Tesla and Da Vinci and um where you you basically you catnap you sleep like in patterns of every 3 hours you sleep 1 hour or something like that Oh this is this is actually a sleep thing that a a friend in Boston has written books about called uh Uberman polyphasic sleeping Polyphasic that's the word I'm looking for Yeah uh, Tesla would sleep like never more than two hours, just like doze off to recharge his batteries. That I could live with. Oh, I and that I've made would... extensive use of the. All I need is f ten minutes closing my eyes. Just let me close my eyes for ten minutes. I'll be good. Isn't for, it amazing? Good for another six hours. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I... but right now I cannot stare at the screen for another moment, and I need to go have a lie down. Yeah. <laughs> that that kind of thing. Yeah, I've been there many times, and I, I honestly feel like if the rest of the world would capitulate 
to my sleep pattern. <laughs> I mean, the fact is, you have to be around between nine and five. Like, that's the only time you're going to reach the rest of the world, you know, barring time zone differences and everything. Yep. You, you really, you don't have a choice. People don't respond to emails at 3 a.m., you know, central time, generally. So I have to, I have to modify to some extent. But. I, I currently have a, a friend who is a PR professional here in the Bay Area who's currently back visiting his family in England and is dealing with the, I believe it is, because we're on daylight savings now, eight-hour time zone difference. Sounds about right. And that just leaves him uh, an, ent an entire shift out of phase with the rest of the world. So he has this choice of would you like to keep dealing with your clients who never leave you alone or would you actually like to see your family or would you like to sleep? You get to choose two. <laughs> two out of three ain't bad. So it's a good thing he took black blood with him to London. So right on. Uh, he's, he's in good shape. <laughs> did I just quote Meatloaf? You did. I feel like that's what's been lacking from this podcast from the start. <laughs> a qual <laughs> we, 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 we have just received another star of quality, folks. <laughs> All right. Um, so you've been at uh, UC Berkeley for a little while. Mm -hmm. uh, sneaking up on six years. Six years. And what do you do there? I'm a health physicist. So I'm again, my, <laughs> my specific responsibilities are radiation safety related to – all the radiation-producing machines on campus. So if you have a button you press and it makes radiation out the other end via electricity, you end up talking to me. If you have instrumentation for the detection of radiation, you end up talking to me. And unofficially, uh, my bailiwick includes weird shit. So if you open a closet – you go into the attic. You find an unmarked box. Yet the Geiger counter is going off. And this is something our building managers have definitely learned to do is, oh, yeah, that door was nailed shut. Yeah, <laughs> I better go get the Geiger counter before I unnail that door. It's one of the really fun things about working at UC Berkeley is we are the oldest university in the state of California. Um, Assuming you ignore the Dominican schools, it's the oldest state university. Um, we well predate all of our regulators. The work with radiation at UC Berkeley began almost as quickly as Becquerel and Curie revealed – and Rutherford revealed what they'd found to the world. People started playing with it here at UC Berkeley. The good news is most of those buildings are long gone but not all of them. So every now and then, something's found. Uh, for example, one time I got called up to the physics department to the attic of LeConte Hall, and the building, building coordinator had seen a box. She recognized mercury in it, except things were also going off on the Geiger counter, so she was very concerned, so she gave a call. And I showed up and I looked at it and I was, what in the hell is this? What is this broken box? I, I was looking longer and harder and said, that's a power rectifier. Except you have a mercury reservoir that can be pressure controlled to change the conductivity of – I just stopped and realized I'm looking at a vacuum and mercury-based transistor. That predates the transistor. So if you ever read uh, Cryptonomicon, uh, there's a description from the World War II era part of it of Mr. Uh, is it Waterston. Yeah, Waterston, who builds one of these for himself. And then, holy crap, there's one of these sitting broken, leaking mercury in a box in front of me with radioactive tubes in it because the glass was thoriated glass. So not very exciting. But it was a – I never would have thought I'd ever see this. Sure. And this is one of the things for health physics for – it's a very narrow topic of safety. In fact, it's, it's wonderful because there's actually instrumentation for it. If you're doing biohazards, if you're doing industrial hygiene, if you're looking for chemical contamination, there aren't many direct reading instruments for those problems for – Gamma X-ray, gamma 
beta radiation, I have a GM meter. It's really easy for me to detect it. Until we get the tricorder from Star Trek, we don't quite have the ability to see Ebola sitting right there. So I, I feel uh, very lucky in that respect for my field. The bad so, – the, no, but the bad no, part. Sorry. The bad part is there is absolutely no human endeavor, none, that someone hasn't thought was a really great idea to either use radioactive materials in it or on it or at it. And I, I gave this challenge once to a class and someone crossed their arms in front of me and said, English literature, poetry. <laughs> And I looked at him and went, no, I got you. No, that actually – I totally have something. There was a poet in 1902 who wrote an ode to radium in radium inks. So it was an invisible ink. So there was one poem that was visible in written ink and another radioactive poem below it. Hmm. So you could only read it if you could read the clicks and draw out what was there. So you, uh, you you kind of have become almost uh, an archaeologist that, of this kind of uh, – uh, in your profession, I suppose. It, you just – you have to. You have to pick up the stories if you have any hope of trying to undo the sins of the past basically. Uh, back, in, back when I was at college at UC Santa Cruz, I was – when I was declaring my physics major, I was asked to explain why do you want to be a physics major? And my retort to the professor was, it took physics majors to make the Manhattan Project. It will take physics majors to unmake it, and it's at least physics majors to unmake it. And he did purse lips and went, yeah, all right. I'll sign your paperwork <laughs> on that principle. But you have to have the base of knowledge and a willingness to go collect all the stories to know what's been done to undo things. And unfortunately, many of those stories were sometimes – classified or people were ashamed and hid it or no one ever wrote anything down. So you start finding surprises and that that above all makes my job difficult but also exciting because it is archaeology. How large is the field of health physicists? So the official professional certification for my field is called the Certified Health Physicist, the CHP, there is a grand total of about 5,000 of us around the world. There's So not big. Not big. There's quite a few more people who are working in the radiation safety field who are not certified. But these are the, the CHPs are the people who actually are allowed to put their signature to paper and say things like, this is decontaminated. Uh, it, it's the equivalent to a physical engineer professional engineer signing off on plans for a bridge, for example. You have to have a health physicist sign off on the shielding design for a reactor before it's allowed to turn on, just as an example. Before you can build your nuclear medicine clinic with the accelerator in there, someone has to design and sign off on the shielding. So that's another part of my field. As I said, it's a very narrow topic, but there is it two inches wide, a mile deep. There's, it sounds like there's it. nothing we don't touch. Is there how would you how would you rank the communication between these approximately five thousand people? Is is there a lot of sharing of knowledge going on? Yes and no. Uh, the 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 rumor network is impressive anywhere. Um, unfortunately, for the profession as a whole. The average age of the health physicists is somewhere around the world is somewhere in the neighborhood of 55. Um, the last major hiring and training push that happened in the profession was in 1982 and that was at the same time that Reagan realized that all of his nuclear weapons designers were dying and retiring and so were the, all the rest of the people in the nuclear weapons infrastructure right as he was trying to cause the MX missile to happen. So a whole new crop of people were brought in and trained. We never trained another one after that. But it's not like we stopped having nuclear weapons or nuclear reactors. 
In fact, nuclear reactors, as they currently stand in America, are a bit of a sore point because our newest one is getting close to its maximum lifespan. The, and that means that means it's becoming dangerous. Yes, uh, dangerous in the sense of they weren't meant to run this long. Uh, in the early nineties, the so just for knowledge, every nuclear reactor is rated to run for forty years. This may seem like an entirely arbitrary number, and that's because it is, thanks to the accountants. And the accountants decided that for any good big construction, you can amortize the cost over 40 years and you're good to go. This has nothing to actually do with the physical environment and condition of the reactor. So we're continuously monitoring its condition anyway as it goes. But once we hit the 40-year mark, that's all these nuclear reactors' licenses were actually written to go. So to keep going, they had to get new licenses. To keep going, they had to be inspected to verify they were in good condition and get the stamp of approval from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for, yeah, you're safe. Here's a 10-year extension. Uh, we did that to almost all of them. Only a couple failed for the, ooh, um, that's corrosion where it shouldn't be. Yeah, this reactor's done. And we're now coming up on the next renewal for are these reactors still in good condition? Should we extend them for another 10 years? The problem being the original way we were supposed to run them is you had one reactor running, one in construction, and one you were demolishing at any given time. And we didn't do that. Every reactor in the United States is a unique butterfly. <laughs> they, that's... One of the reasons why people were excited for the sighting that was done back in 2008 for the Obama administration approved the construction of a few new reactors in the south where they desperately need more more power of any kind near Atlanta just because the cities of the south have grown tremendously and no one really expected that to happen. And they stopped. The natural gas boom – caused the nuclear power, the supposed nuclear renaissance that's supposed to happen, to not happen, or at least it slowed down. And then Fukushima happened, and a fresh wave of terror ran around the world, and no one's willing to build anything anymore, which is unfortunate, because we desperately need that power, and the fact that, the fact that we are getting coal slag dams starting to let go shows that coal may not necessarily be the safest, most wonderful thing either. <sighs> but th th those would be big, big sad feelings regarding nuclear power, and it would be nice if we could replace our plants with newer ones that were easy to maintain, easy to have replaceable parts for, that weren't unique butterflies. Because the, okay. the fleet is old. <laughs> wow. Well, without getting into the, the merits and, and uh, the pros and cons of nuclear power, which I would actually be fascinated to talk to you about, um, I think we'll actually break for a sponsor. Oh, no, that's sure. It, it sounds good. <laughs> this is You are seriously a fascinating person that I could talk to for a long time. Uh, well, my, my brain is sticky. <laughs> Some, sometime over drinks. By all means. All right. Our second sponsor today is HostGator. HostGator offers Linux VPS hosting, the perfect bridge between shared hosting and dedicated servers. Their VPS plans are completely customizable to match your specific hosting needs and can be easily upgraded to dedicated servers as your site grows. HostGator has fully managed 24-7, 365 support, along with root access for complete control of your container and weekly off-site backups. And they offer one-click installers for whatever compatible platform you use. The servers are scalable, so adding more resources is easy. Visit HostGator.com and use the code DANSENTME for 50% off all VPS hosting. Alright, so this brings us to our top three picks, and we will do them one at a time, back and forth, starting with you. Okay. So we've already mentioned St. George Spirit, so I'm going to talk about something else instead. I would like to make a recommendation of a board game. The board game is from Flying Frog Games, and it's called Fortune and Glory. Have, have you taken a peek at it? I have not. Okay. I, 
I read your description. So Fortune and Glory is basically a game of pulp adventure from the 30s. So you are adventuring around the world. If you remember the map with Indiana Jones flying all over the place in the, the Pan Am Clipper, that's effectively the map that you're flying across and boating across as you're trying to collect artifacts from lost tombs, fighting Nazis, having adventures. Oh, yes, and there's a Zeppelin that flies around the map that constantly accumulates more Nazi gold that you can sneak aboard, punch Nazis, steal gold, jump off again. Um, I have never had a bad time playing this game, just trying to think of the stories of exactly how did I find a nightclub in the ancient temple? Not important because <laughs> I'm fighting Nazis now. I, I love this game. <laughs> so is this a short-term game? Like can you play this in an evening? You absolutely can play it in the evening. However, you may want to have dinner beforehand because uh, it's rated as a two- to three-hour game. And that first couple times you play it, it's going to take you a little while. It may be closer to four hours that first time you play. But once you get it down, it's great. <laughs> how, how old is this game? It came out two years ago. Oh, wow. Uh it is the most – now, I, I do have to give you a warning. It is the most expensive game that Flying Frog ever made. It is $99. But it is it is well worth it. Get friends, get drinks, punch Nazis. You can actually – wow, there are several variations of it on Amazon. Oh, yes, there are some expansion sets as well. Oh, is that what I'm looking at? So, because... so now you can add cultists to it as well. Um yeah, yeah, that's definitely the cultist. You can add more mobsters. Oh, yes, the mobsters become important with one of the expansions. It's, this says treasure hunters. Is that yeah, that's the game the, itself? That That's one of the expansions, expansion oh, okay. sets for it. That's when you add camels to the game. So The uh, the actual game on Amazon, new, lists at $225. Oh, that would be a lot more than I paid. Um I think that would you, be that would be a you, lot for a board game. I think you may be finding someone trying to uh, rip you off on <laughs> on, your, on original printing because the game. No, here's here's what's funny about this listing is it says 225 new and then it says one collectible from 150. <laughs> Whereas if I walk down to Games of Berkeley, they have one on display for 99 bucks. All right, we'll put 99 dollars as the uh, <laughs> the price because this seems all over the board here. Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to have to try this. My my game of choice lately has been Cards Against Humanity, but you have to be so careful who you play it with. I play it with my mom, and she wins a lot because I, she really bring mom. she really brings out the best in Catholic education. <laughs> uh, it's amazing things that she can pull off that we we look over at her and go, "Really? <laughs> oh, we love you, mom." It's my it's my litmus test, and it's the reason I have very few friends that will come <laughs> over anymore. Whereas we make dedicated evenings for it, uh, so that's that's wonderful. I'm I'm jealous, but yeah, fortune and glory might be a little more palatable to my other friends as well as my Cards Against Humanity friends. I I I haven't found anyone who is not excited about the opportunity to punch Nazis. Yeah, I I I think. I think it, you, if you found that person, you you probably wouldn't be friends with them. Um, indeed, you might yeah. you might have to sit down and do a stroking of the chin and go, hmm, yes, tell me more. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, your turn. My turn. My first pick is this little thing called a shutter. S H U T T R, with the hip dropping of the e. Um. <laughs> And it's from Muku Labs, and what it is, it's a remote for your iPhone camera. It's a remote shutter, like a shutter release. Okay. And what it does, it's just a very simple, like, Bluetooth thing that it has one button, and all it does is hit the volume up on your phone. <laughs> so when you load up your camera and you put it into, like, a Glyph or any kind of tripod, and you, you set it up and you get it all all nice and focused and then you step back and you can hit a remote shutter so you don't have any jiggle on your camera it's also great for selfies where you're holding your phone so far out that you can't hit the button anymore or if you'd like to actually have your entire body in the shot for yourself right for you know reasons reasons um, reasons yes yeah. uh you 
or anyone else's body and your you know there are reasons that you would want this america is a beautiful country with all kinds of opportunities <laughs> and it'll even start your video recording mm-hmm. too um not to push that theme any further but um but it is it's really handy it's like it's a 40 dollar it seems like a lot for a volume button but it's come in handy for me lately, uh, quite a few times for uh, shooting more. Like, I love my iPhone 5 for photography. It's it's actually a really capable camera, and it's the camera that's always with me. But there are it times... Is, and that's that's the basic definition of what's... That's Ansel Adams, I believe, is the best camera is the one right. you have. Exactly. Exactly. The camera that you have. And that one, any situation, and I almost always have my glyph with me as well. I don't always have a tripod with me, but with the glyph, I can set it up. I can get a stable shot and then back off and I can hit the shutter. And it makes a really, it, like in this, all of this fits in your pocket. The shutter is like a little like two inch by quarter inch by one inch remote. Hmm. So it fits nicely in your pocket. It's really everything. It's a portable photo studio. Well, damn. I, so if it weren't for the fact that I'm about to hit the road on vacation myself, that might be handy when I get to the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'll look, yeah. yeah. I'll look into that one. You're going to the Grand Canyon, huh? Yeah. We're about about to start a road trip in D.C. and drive all the way home over the course of three weeks. Are you going down the Grand Canyon? Uh, no, I did that when I was eight and that that, that was enough. Okay. Uh, I've I've now seen all the rocks all the way down and satisfied that bit of geology nerd. Have uh, you seen the Havasupai Falls? No. That is worth the trip down. Mm. It's it's like I don't know if it holds any records, but it is the clearest water I have ever seen in my life. It's almost mm. it's almost like it's not there. You can see straight down 20 feet to the bottom. It's it's crazy. Okay. It was my favorite part of okay. my trip to the Grand Canyon. The rest of it I could eh, take or leave. <laughs> but the Havasupai Falls was just amazing. Duly noted. Okay. So, uh, Havasupai Falls. Mm. I've let <laughs> the lovely assistant know. <laughs> All right. So what's your uh, – wait. Yeah, what's your number two? So number two pick, I made an earlier mentioning of it. That would be – a comic book, which I have the, the the luck to actually get to help them do some writing, and that would be Atomic Robo. If you have gotten to take a look at that one out there, Atomic Robo is a robot created by Nikola Tesla as his one and only child and his greatest achievement, who is now immortal because he's a robot. He does all; he never turns off. Fighting crime to having adventures ultra science and I get to be their science advisor for which I'm very lucky um, because at one point Brian asked me a question he's, he's the writer for it for how exactly would his heart work and I I had to look back at him and go it doesn't but, <laughs> if, but if you apply fiction to it here's the basis in reality and you can go from there and that has actually been the most fun thing, getting to work with them and watch the stories that they've created is the – they take the basis of reality and go, that's a nice starting point and plausibly <laughs> go from there. But actually the nicest thing was at their very outset, they made a thing called The Promise, which is on their website. And it's their declaration that there would be no filler. So if you read comic books every now and then, you'd have that – the four or five junk issues until they started their next major story arc for why did I pay for these ones? So they're comic fans. So no, they're not going to give you junk to read. They'd rather just have you not have a comic for a couple months. There would be no cheesecake. So Scott is an excellent artist, but he does not go to the uh, Rob Liefeld school of bulging muscles pockets and uh, nothing around the chest whatsoever and backs that don't work on women. (laughs) Basically, he said, we have wives, we have daughters, we'd like them to not punch us for what we've made. So (laughs) that and there would be no retcon. 
So they have a robot who, with a 90, who's 90 years old, they can jump anywhere in his lifespan they feel like and tell the story as they want to go. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun reading and a lot of fun helping as they go. I, I've, I've said it many times on this podcast. I'm, I, I don't read comic books. Like I've never gotten into them. But this, this does actually look really intriguing. The, the, the promise page itself makes me think, this is something, this is very unusual in the comic world. It, yeah. It, it's one of the few comics that I still read on a regular basis. Um, I actually don't, I don't think I have any other active subscriptions right now. The artwork looks really fun, too. <laughs> Nice. All right, back to you. Okay. Okay, so my second pick would be, uh, I don't know how they say it, but I'm going to go with Ricomi or Ricom or Ricome. Uh, we'll go with Ricomi. It's this app that, all right, so, so you use your iPhone as a camera, and a lot of us do. and Totally do. And you end up with a ton of pictures in your camera roll, right? And then you want to show them to somebody, and you're like, hold on, flip, 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 flip. Okay, wait, hold on, flip, 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 flip. Before and I then dumped you... my phone, I had 4,000 pictures sitting on it. So I yeah. had a couple years to show people. Yeah, and yeah. you forget you forget when you took a picture, like in relationship to everything else. So even as you're flipping, you're like, you know, you get to a year ago, and you're like, yeah, I took this trip to Chicago sometime before I took this picture of my cat. Or maybe not, maybe after, maybe it was a year apart, I don't know. So this app actually creates like categories of location and time and it scans your photos to define like objects. Like if I type in after after it indexes all my photos, if I type in cat, it's going to find all the pictures I've taken of my cats without me having to categorize them. And I, I, admittedly, I take a lot of pictures of my cats. I don't get out a lot. Um, you've just described lovely assistance phone. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, I can type in pictures of uh, like female or white or woman and find all the pictures I have of my wife and her friends. Um, it's, it, it's, it's fascinating. It's a little frightening. I'll admit how well it categorizes my images. I, I bet I could challenge their object recognition software, but it would be fun testing. Uh, yeah, it's you know it's a free app. Uh, yeah, and it is it's it's honestly really helpful when you're sitting at the bar and you want to show someone that picture that you took a year ago and you don't remember exactly when a year ago and you don't remember like what trip it was on. You can just type in a keyword of what would be in the picture that you want to show this person. And so far, it's had great luck in just bringing up the picture I want, or at least narrowing it down to a, a flippable field of pictures that I want. Hmm. Okay. Pretty cool. Okay. Pretty cool. I got that one. All right. All right. So for my third pick, I want to share my second favorite computer game of all time which is coming back. Carmageddon Reincarnation. It was a Kickstarter that went up last year, and they are getting very close to actual release of their game again this fall. When this game originally was released in, I believe it was 97, uh, it, it got banned in England and Germany for being far too violent, far too bloody. The, the whole point of the game was you were driving a car having a race, inspired, except this race was inspired by the 70s film Death Race 2000. I was going to ask if this had any correlation because there was a Death Race 2000 video game. Which I played on the IBM compact PC, which was not very <laughs> exciting. No. Um, <laughs> uh, but Carmageddon, you had three ways you could win the race. You could do all of the laps and come in first. You could kill every other opponent vehicle by wrecking them, which is That's not kind of the, the shoot the moon strategy. Actually, it's the way I won most of the times because the, <laughs> because the real shoot the moon strategy is you can kill every single pedestrian on the map. And some of them are on the roofs of buildings, so they're hard to get to. Um, it had a great soundtrack by a San Jose band called Fear Factory at the time. So it's 
driving industrial music without the lyrics, which I have to be very careful to not listen to while driving in real life because I will very quickly hit um, <laughs> heading towards three-digit speeds with that playing. But the game was just simple, pure mayhem and delight. And then they released sequels to it that gave missions, objectives, things other than the pure delight of just the simple I'm running over people to heavy metal music. And it was, it, it was a beautiful, pure thing. And why would you ruin that? All it needed was its graphics upgraded. And the uh, the game fell off the map for a good long while. And then the original game studio and team got back together and said, we want this game back and we see the purity that the original game was. We just want to give it a physics engine and graphics fit for the 21st century. And they called it Grand Theft Auto? No. No, Grand Theft Auto, again, has disgusting missions. It wants <laughs> you to do things. No, 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 no. This is the simple joy of driving fast and running over people. They're running See, into that's, other that's how I've always played Grand Theft. That's why I've never – like I go to friends' houses and I like, play Grand Theft Auto and I'm like, OK, I can run over people, so I do. And that's as far as I've ever gotten in that game. So yeah, a game get, that was purely directed towards that, I could live with. Yes. And <laughs> Carmageddon Reincarnation is the, the new one they're putting together. And you said it's in alpha right now? It's in alpha right now on Steam. Uh, they, they've been making ready – frequent updates to it uh, running about once a month since March, adding more cars, adding more maps, finishing the maps that are there. So I believe they're slated to go full release in September. Nice. My number one favorite game, of course, is Fallout, but that I, everyone knows that. So we're, <laughs> we're going to stick with the one people may not know. All right. Well, along the lines of ultraviolence, my, my last pick is Assistant.io. Okay. It doesn't sound violent because it no, isn't. No, no, it doesn't. No, no it's, uh, it's, it's this uh, – you ever used like doodle.com? It's 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 a cool way to schedule meetings. Like Doodle was a cool way is a cool way, I guess, that you could l lay out a block of times and people could pick and it would figure out what worked for everybody. This, in fact, As, is what you sent this appointment to me for this talk via. You it? you were my you were my test subject on Assistant.io. Oh, excellent. You're mine. I'm yours. And it uh, it um it lets you block out times, and I only did it with Philip and um. And basically just scheduled this podcast, but it blocks out the times and it'll hold those times in your Google calendar. So you don't go and double book and offer that time to someone else. And then once the person on the other end picks one of the time slots that's available, it'll lock that down, send out notifications to all parties and, and then remove the blocks from your calendar. So basically it relieves me of like, I'll send out when I'm, when I'm looking for, to fill a week in the podcast, I'll send out a few emails and say, hey, are you available this this week? And then a lot of times, by the time people get back to me, I will have forgotten who has already responded and who I have invitations out waiting for, and mm -hmm. I'll end up double booking people. This stops that. This prevents that, and it, it automates all of the calendaring for me and the notifications and the alarms. And right now it's totally free. Like after the beta period, uh, for people that schedule more than five meetings a month, there will be a charge. But but they say that for people like me who are scheduling four to five meetings a month, it's going to be free forever. And this is a pretty cool. It's a pretty cool system. Um, I I liked it. The only thing that I saw that. May may have been a problem for me was they, I I failed to remember the difference between Pacific and Central Standard Time. <laughs> it it did it did uh, my first test it did screw that up because I don't think I listed. no I, it, it didn't screw it up I did <laughs> and oh I grabbed, and I grabbed the wrong time relative to you and once okay. I did that I could I me I couldn't undo it but you did H human so error. Yeah, hu human error. Uh, you, the machine is smarter than me, but <laughs> outsmarted. Yeah. If only you could drive over it with a car. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's the top three picks. I like yours. 
I like yours. So we uh, should be friends. High fives. <laughs> <laughs> and you are on Twitter as Funranium, F-U-N-R-A-N-I-U-M. Come for the coffee and steins, stay for the fart jokes and history and sarcasm. And you, <laughs> and you are also on the web at funraniumlabs.com, mm -hmm. which is also the home of Black Blood of the Earth. And the Steins of Science. And I recommend both. Um, and, well, I guess that's uh, that's your contact info. And, and Philip, thank you for being here. Oh, uh, and you're Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic. Wow. It's like I don't even have to be here. <laughs> I just needed to introduce you. Well, thank you. Um, all right. Well, yeah, I'm Brett Terpstra. I'm at uh, brettterpstra.com. And everywhere you look for me, I'm TT Scoff. And uh, I'm, always, I'm always looking for new fun people. So feel free to introduce yourself. In fact, I'll be at WWDC this year. WW. I, I feel like maybe I've had too much absinthe. Is this a complicated spelling task? It's the whole three syllable letters. I'm just going to call it the Worldwide Developer Conference because I think that's actually shorter. Um, but yeah, I'll be there this year. So if anyone's headed there, feel free to ping me. Love to grab coffee or meet on street corners and discuss the intricacies of Objective C. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, and that was, wow, episode 97. We're coming up on 100. I'm sorry you weren't part of 100, Philip. No, that's okay. But you were part of getting to 100. I, I'm, I'm another brick in the wall. I understand. But it all goes up. <laughs> I like you. All right. Good, good, all right. Good to meet you, Fred. Well, thank you again. All right. Thank you. And we'll see everybody in a week. All right. Bye-bye.